You're listening to Popcorn Ronin with Roger and Vince. Every two weeks, they give their thoughts on movies, TV, and anime. Star Trek iteration, everyone from diehard Trekkies to the non-interested line up to take their shots at what they believe is wrong with anything that's changed or even stayed the same. Star Trek has long been a franchise that is appreciated after some time has passed, after contemplation and analysis, after that initial passion has worn off. There's a wonderful story that Nichelle Nichols, the original Uhura, tells of when she met Martin Luther King Jr., She told him that she was going to be leaving the show as it wasn't very successful early on. King strongly urged her to remain, explaining how important it is for a person of color to share the bridge with the rest of that cast. Since then, we've watched other people of color star in each of the series. However, it's never been a woman of color at the lead role until Discovery. And as if to make it that much more interesting, the lead role isn't even the captain of a Federation ship. Michael Burnham starts off as first officer of the USS Shenzhou, then through a catastrophic series of events, winds up arrested for mutiny and imprisoned. Almost immediately, we're drawn to this character, not just because she's so brilliantly acted by Sinico Martin-Green, but also because her history is very unique and interesting and ties her to one of Star Trek's favorite characters, Spock. Now, this in and of itself would not be enough to carry a series, but that's hardly all Discovery has to offer. The acting across the board separates Discovery from every single other Trek before it, with the exception of the J.J. Abrams reboot films. Each Trek before has had a mixed cast in terms of the acting abilities. And while we may have learned to love some of their acting tics, it's far different when you watch an ensemble that's composed entirely of brilliant actors. It allows you to get that much more invested. The writing is also very impressive, delving into incredibly difficult and rarely seen topics like the torture and sexual abuse of male characters, as well as the betrayal of foster parents and how that impacts a child who's already had so much taken away from her. Add to that the best cinematography imaginable, not just for television, but but film as well. And you've got a cinema experience every week in your living room. Today on this lazy Saturday afternoon, Marty and I are going to sit over a cup of coffee, shoot the breeze about Discovery, quite possibly my new favorite Trek. Now, one of the issues that we've seen often is when new creators try to weave their own stories into an already established narrative. It's simple when you have a series like The Next Generation that follows up on the original series. They're free to do whatever they want. And when they touch on canonical elements, fans appreciate the nod to the lore that they, that's come before them. However, when you look at something like Enterprise, it's far different. They're limited in just how much they can do as the series existed before the original series. 
I feel Voyager did a good job of this by flinging the ship into an entirely different quadrant of the galaxy. They, they set an overarching plot of wanting to get home, but everything that happens between the start and finish is basically free game for the creators as it has next to no impact on the quote-unquote main canon. Discovery had to contend with this during both seasons, and while it took some time to get the payoff explanation of how this all fits, of how such things could have existed and never been mentioned, it works. I won't say that it's always a satisfying resolution, but the story's not done yet, so we'll see. So, right from the get-go, how do you feel about this series, and how would you place it in comparison to some of the other ones? Because I know you are also quite a fan of the, the Star Trek franchise. I, I am, and we've never talked uh, on the show or offline about our favorite treks, so I want to answer your question with the question, Roger. What was your previous favorite tr- For me, it had to have been um, The Next Generation, because while my introduction to Trek was through the original series, um, it was primarily the original series movies, not the series, uh, because okay. they didn't run those where like, I'm, I was up north in Canada and the channels that we had, we didn't get reruns of the original series. I saw some, but not a lot. And this was, this is before the internet kids. So it's not <laughs> like I could just download them and watch them or, or, or stream them or anything like that. If they weren't showing on any of your three channels, you didn't get to see it. Uh, but then I'd seen the, uh, the movies and then when the next generation came out, it was that perfect time for me. I, I was a teenager. I myself was, uh, taking part in creative things like writing and things like that. I, I had that personality. So it, it was, it really touched on a lot of things for me. And then of course you had Patrick Stewart, which right. sold it for anybody who had any doubts about the quality of the show moving forward. And, and there were a lot of issues with it without a doubt, but there were, was also so much that was good. And even in rewatching it several times over the years with the kids and whatnot, um, it still for the most part holds up that said right now. And this is nobody fucking agrees with me on this one. I'm, I'm in that minority. If I am in the mood late at night and I just want to watch a Trek something, I'm actually going to pop in one of the J.J. Abrams movies. I adored those movies, and I, I will fully admit there's a bunch of mistakes in them. There's things they could have done better. Absolutely, I get that. However, for me, I fucking adore them. I just, I love the alternate take on it, and that's part of why I also really liked... Um, Discovery, and and why I place Discovery ridiculously high on my list now. Maybe even if I look at it in terms of breakdown, which is the better in my opinion, it is absolutely Discovery for me. So Discovery for me rates pretty high. It has yet to get seasons three to seasons five, season six of DS9, which is my, although New Gen- the next generation brought me on board I, you know, living in Chicago, there was a station that played all the original treks in syndication. And so Sundays uh, after church, and if there was no baseball, uh, football game or baseball game, or when we got a second TV, I would go upstairs and watch all sorts of 
whatever I could get my hands on from Trek to really bad horror movies to really bad post-apocalyptic horror movies. There's a trend here. Um, but Cisco is also my captain because he was always like, once they figured out who Cisco was, which is part of the problem of, of track, like for historically speaking, like who are these characters? It takes a while for them, I think, to really get moving. Um, bar none, uh, in the pale moonlight, which is a DS nine episode in the middle of the dominion war is one of my like all time favorite TV show episodes of all time. So, uh, discovery is great. And they come out, I feel firing on all cylinders and find their groove. Um, the problem is they find their groove and then they change lanes and then I'm mixing my metaphors here, but you get what I'm saying. They find something, they go with it. It's not like completing an arc. It's more like they just change direction. And I think season three, we're going to get a more consistent delivery. Explain to um, me what you mean by that. Well, so there is, um, there are definitely like arcs within the show, like oh, multiple. Yeah. yeah. Right. Like, like, cause it's, you know, well-written TV where they're, there are beginning, middles, and ends. But I feel like they get, they're starting, especially like within season two, it feels, I don't want to say choppy, but it definitely feels more disjointed than one, like, yes, nice curve. I will absolutely agree with you. Um, well, yes and no. What I will say about this is, and, and it is something that I thought about as we were watching it as well, because with the first season, they dealt more with that alternate dimension, yeah, which was unbearably cool. And then it was almost as if they thought, okay, we did the alternate dimension for season one, season two, we're going to do time travel. And so then you get some time travel stuff thrown in, shenanigans thrown into season two, which I feel takes a while to make sense. Very early on in season two, I was not a fan of the Red Angel trope that was being used because it felt as if they were using it early on just as a means of telling separate stories and using that as the overarching container. You know, that yes, these are individual stories on each of the planets or each of the dealing with different people or whatever, and, and they're self-contained, but they also are all part of this this idea this overarching uh, theme of the red angel and it wasn't until maybe halfway through the second season that that started to uh, not make sense but be presented in such a way that I thought was more enjoyable for the viewer because again early on those first few episodes it really did feel like they were trying to just very haphazardly tie the episodes together um using the, the red angel. And it's funny because again, I say that and yet that's pretty much all any other star Trek series did. They, they, they were all self-contained episodes for the most part, unless you had right. a two parter or whatever. So the fact that they were doing that here should not have been a big deal. And yet, because we're in a different place now as viewers because of all the streaming services and because of series like Stranger Things and all these other spectacular series that are a long story spread across multiple episodes. 
And because we kind of saw that, well, not kind of, we saw that with the first season, that it was so jarring in the second season. At least that's how it was for me. No, I, I wholeheartedly agree. And part of it has to do, I think, with some of, you know, the production that went on behind the scenes. Like, I know they changed showrunners, and there's a lot to do with that. And so when your writer's room is in flux and you're playing on Trek, yeah. and there's it feels like, for whatever reason, Trek is really afraid to go too far into the future, which I've, wait, except, except for now, Discovery Season 3. Um, but they can't do it in the Star Trek Prime universe, which is just bizarre to me. Anyway, um, uh, yeah, I totally agree. I, I, well, I, I think that the idea of season two and it's jumping around and the Red Angel, like parts of it that were interesting. And I think sometimes the best Trek episodes are where it deals more with philosophies uh, in action than it does with like, you know, space battles or, you know, hand-to-hand fights. Not saying that there have been some awesome space battles and fights, but like I think the Star Trek as a vehicle for comprehending current times is a pretty fantastic uh, way to view the series. Yeah, see, I am of the opinion that um, I I don't have a problem with the more action-based Treks. That's something that they gave J.J. Abrams a hard time for for his reboots, and that's something that you've heard here as well to a certain degree. Um, also, when they are when people were bitching about the some of the content being far more, I don't want to see risque because that sounds so prudish, but I mean they're dropping f bombs in it, and so making yeah. it like out to be well, I can't watch this with my kids anymore. And you're like, you know what? Times have changed. And that needs to be reflected, especially in a series like Trek. I mean, this is a series that is supposed to be embracing the best of what the future can be while still tying it to some form of reality. We as a people are different. What we expect from our media is different. How we are telling stories is different. So the very, very slow... Um, story elements that we saw in the original series or in the next generation, you're not going to see as many of those because a we have the technology to do better and to do the things that they couldn't back then, but may have wanted to, but also that you can still have those moral quandaries. You can still have um, the breadth of diversity that you that that Star Trek really wants to promote. For civilizations, yeah. you can have all of these wonderful things that are in strikes. The intelligence, the really clever writing, the pseudoscience that is fun to try to analyze and make it still interesting to watch. Put in some action, put in some some battles, do whatever. Make it something that is gripping to watch so that more people want to see it. So that's like I did not have a problem at all with the pacing or the action or anything in this. I thought it was a a an evolution of Trek that needed to happen. Yeah. And, and like one of the, it was the last next generation movie data drops. I think data says shit or something. Yeah. Was, there's uh, something. Yeah. yeah. So it's been a long time coming. Like what the, I think the biggest and the only really major um, 
issue with Star Trek and story creation is, is it completely episodic or is it serialized? And DS9 was the first to go serialized. It it can be both. And it should be both because you can do great one-off little bits, but people are preferring the serialized format. And I, I personally prefer all those linking stories, but... I do too. I, I, I like both. And that's the thing. And that's where I felt that this worked because you did get episodes that were really self-contained and yet still referenced everything that is going on and the, the important plight that's going on that they have to, you know, whether it was in season one, the shit that was going down or season two and, and this overarching across both of the seasons to try to make sense of how this fits in because it all happens 10 years prior to the original series. And just to put it in context, if you haven't seen the show, folks, I mean, we've got a spore drive here that allows them to jump anywhere instantly. It's not healthy for one of the characters, but it can be done. And you also have the Klingon, the Federation Klingon war, which has been referenced often. Well, you get to see what they're talking about now and how it came about and things like that. And then you have later on the time travel as well of this red angel character. So you have far more modern story elements that you didn't see in the other ones or that you, you know, that were kind of haphazardly put together. But here it's like, how could this possibly exist before we never would have heard about it? And it's been long enough we can spoil all the things. That's I'm not worried about that. And the end resolution of at, at the end of season two, again, we don't know what's going to be happening in season three at this point, is the lead character, as well as a bunch of the crew, have sacrificed themselves to go to the future, the end of time, essentially, to stop this rogue AI that would otherwise destroy all of... Anything that's alive in the universe. It's it's such a enormous concept. You know, it's this is massive. And that's where I have a little bit of a hard time with how it fits in to the canon, how they tried to cut that puzzle piece to make it fit. Because while I'm all right with them being flung into the future and that being the end of that and explaining why you don't have discovery, why you don't have the spore drive, why you don't have all of these things. But the fact that some are left behind means that it would have gotten out. And yeah, they have this pact that nobody's going to talk about it. Otherwise, it'll happen. It, it'll bring about the, the time paradox and it'll happen. I get that. But humanity is not that perfect. You know, I, I can believe that Spock would keep his trap shut. Right. But not everybody else that is aware of what happened. So it kind of has a little bit of that nagging element for me, at least, that it, it wasn't the perfect resolution at the end. It, it's, But it's enough for me to be curious, okay, well, are they going to address that in season three? What's going to happen? Yeah, I. so I don't know. I, I know all I know about season three is from what I have read is like 900 years in the future. Uh, the short Calypso is very close in time to where we're going to see the discovery. Um, and my big Actually, thing- transition into that before you go on, because for sure. folks, again, who aren't aware, between seasons one and two, 
they put out four shorts. It was Runaway, Calypso, The Brightest Star, and The Escape Artist. Each featured different secondary characters in Discovery, as well as in, in some cases, some some of, of the main characters, like Tilly is in um, Runaway, brilliantly loved her. Uh, Saru is in... The brightest star. So why don't you talk about Calypso now, seeing as you brought it up? Calypso is interesting in that there are no secondary characters other than the ship itself, who has gotten some sort of gigantic upgrade, like a bigger, bigger computer brain than I think we've ever seen in the Trek universe, at least on the Federation's. Um, I don't know if the Federation has like some sort of ban on sentient AI. We've never really seen it. Um, but the ship is calling herself Zora. And uh, we see uh, in this episode that was written by Michael Shabon and Sean Cochran. Uh, we see a man show up uh, flying a ship. Uh, the, he docks basically into Calypso. And it turns out that in the 33rd century, there is some gigantic war going on. And as this guy begins to heal and to uh, wait for stop, oh, she's never going to stop barking. Um, we basically see um, the growth of this guy and the AI become super close because they're, they have only each other to talk to. Um, the Calypso reference is clearly a nod to Greek, Greek mythology. It kind of, feels a little bit like Odysseus on his way back to uh, uh, wherever he was from. I totally am forgetting now. Um, before he goes back to war, right? So we have this actor who has, his name's escaped me, but he was in um, Friday Night Lights as the uh, quarterback from uh, Louisiana. He was also, I think, Hardeman in um, Leverage. Aldous Hudge. That uh, Aldous Hud is one of my favorite actors, and I can never remember his. But Aldous uh, eventually says no to Zora and no to staying on the ship and goes back to his family and to the war, which we know nothing about other than some sort of, um, it might be that some remnant of the Federation is part of this. We, we just do not know. We don't know where the uh, Discovery is. We don't know how the Discovery became Zora. And uh, all we know is that th our, our friend and uh, Zora uh, basically kind of fall in love. And uh, our friend has to be like, no, I'm out because uh, I've got a family and I have to go back home. It so. was, it's an interesting short, more so than the other ones I find, after you've watched the two seasons. Because, yeah. because we got to see throughout two seasons how they're trying to, again, cut that puzzle piece to try to make it fit in. This is that part where they can have a little bit more freedom to do what they want kind of thing. And that's where maybe we'll see season three. You know, if yep. season three is, or if this is a nod to what we can expect from season three, holy crap and hell. Yeah, I want to see that right. for sure. It, it could be brilliant. Yeah, there's there's some stuff that's going on here with this episode, how it's, you know, Zora has been upgrading herself. There's a reference to a Turing test. It's just phenomenal. Um, I'm just really upset that I don't remember our uh, Aldous, uh, Aldous's character's name. 
Um, and I'm looking through the show notes on the recap site. He's known as Kraft. Kraft. Uh, so it was my favorite thing to watch in between season one and two. And now I know, I think it was at, uh, it wasn't San Diego Comic-Con, but there was a big nerd prom where they mentioned that this is, seems to be the direction that uh, Discovery season three will be going in. Yeah. And again, judging by the, the brilliant writing, acting in cinematography especially for me i i'm salivating at the mouth thinking about what they could do in that third season again thousand years into the future my god they could have a lot of fun with this like it it could be brilliant and toss in a, a sentient ai oh yeah i'm on board i i would love to see that yeah it would be fun to see it would be fun to do and oh yeah it just hit me there isn't a ban on sentient AI because we had data, data. and a whole bunch say, yeah. of issues with that. So, yeah, yeah. All right, let's break down a few of the favorite episodes, and this is going to give you some talking time here. So we're going to start with season one, and you had mentioned a few you wanted to talk about. You still want to go through those same ones, or were there some other ones you wanted to talk about? Yeah, these are the ones that I reviewed uh, for today, and I want to start with Choose Your Pain, where we are introduced to Henry Fen- uh, Hardcourt Fenton Mudd, who is a character from uh, that spans multiple treks. I love it. He was in the original series. He's in DS9. Um, he's in one of the best DS9 episodes involving Tribbles, where early CGI technology was used to splice... Um, uh, Cisco in with Kirk is hilarious. And also the first incarnation of the Federation time police, which will probably come in eventually. Anyway, uh, basically the Federation's war with the Klingons that was started by Michael Burnham, who is uh Sonequa Martin green, who we've talked about as the main character of the show. Uh, she has now been conscripted into service on the discovery and is helping, um, I was about to call him by his Slytherin name. Uh, Jason Isaac's character. Slytherin He's a Slytherin. He's Draco. He plays Draco Malfoy's dad in the Harry Potter series. He has never been a good guy in any TV show or movie I have ever watched. Spoiler, he's a bad guy. Lorca. Um, Lorca. And they, they hit, what I loved about this, there are breadcrumbs pointing out that not all is what to be... Tr- trusted with Lorca from the get-go. But in this episode, uh, Lorca gets uh, abducted by the Klingons because the Klingons know that the Discovery is some sort of like uh, impressive weapon of a ship and they want to figure out what's going on. Um, And so in holding uh, with other prisoners, including uh, Harry Mudd and a guy named Ash Tyler, um, we see Lorca build the trying to figure out like what's going on find you know basically learns that mud has been spying on them for the klingons and uh that ash tyler has been locked up for about eight nine months they engineer their escape uh in the meantime um and the title of the episode comes from kind of uh where the klingons say choose your pain in order to prevent uh, people to uh from bonding they have one prisoner choose another prisoner to beat up or torture by the Klingons, which is great. But it's only kind of choosing your pain because then the the rest of the crew of the Discovery are using a 
basically a Super Saiyan-style tardigrade that they have named, actually that another ship named Ripper, and they're basically torturing this poor creature in order to explore the universe and the mycelial network. The, the basic idea being that in order for the, um, for the ship to explore the mycelial network, which lets them jump between points in space and time, they need an organic process. Otherwise, the mycelial network just does not allow that uh, method of conduit that, to work. It basically just says, no, you're a foreign entity, boop, you're out. Let's, but because let's, the tardigrade, let's it work. Let's pause there for one moment. What did you think about the spore, the, the entirety of that concept, the spore drive? Man, I don't like throwing shade, but like I can put up with a lot. But in the Star Trek universe, you're going to tell me that the way and what makes the discovery special is some vague force-like fungus that connects all living things and universes. That kind of um, pulled me out. And in my head, I just edited out spore drive and replaced the word spore with MacGuffin drive. And then all of a sudden it was fine. Yeah, it's, see, I, I thought that if they would have used something more scientific and less trying to make it seem like, like you said, like the, the force kind of thing, like the, this network throughout all of, uh, an organic network throughout all of the, the, the universe wasn't my favorite. I mean, had they even just said we're using dark matter and traveling through dark matter, all right, whatever. You know, like something stupid. Right. It could be stupid, but still something that is not implying that the entirety of the, the universe is held together. Much like Spider-Man would have you believe there's a web that connects all of everything. Here, it's this spore universe, whatever the fuck it is. I I was not as big a fan of that either. Yeah, it just, it doesn't fit the universe that I find, that I remember. And, you know, Star Trek has a tendency also to shoot itself in the foot sometimes with what it wants to do and get done and how it explores various. But at the end of the day, they chose to have the spore drive. They decided that there's a fungal network that exists in space. And I guess, like, you know, they found like weird spores and like, well, earth-based spores in space. So maybe what I'm going to let it go. <laughs> it's the MacGuffin drive and we'll just leave it there. Yep. Um, but uh, the tardigrade can explore the MacGuffin universe better than any other creature, because in order to explore the MacGuffin, you must be an organic creature, which they think is now sentient. So basically, um, when I first started watching Trek, I got really upset about like, okay, so there's this animal that on earth we also call a water bear. It is weird looking, but kind of adorable, but also weird looking, but we're torturing it. And oh, by the way, it's, you know, it's sentient. It's got, it's a fully conscious independent living being that really bothered me. And I'm glad that they addressed that. Yeah. The, the other reason why I wanted to talk about this, um, this episode is because they do address the fact that they are uh, it, the price of winning this war. It might be on the on exploiting and murdering and torture, murdering and torturing a whole race of creatures so that they can win their war for equality and you know peace. So a, a nice kind of dichotomy that always you should 
love to explore. Um, so that was one reason why I wanted to recap that episode. And the other is Ash Tyler becomes an incredibly important character, both in season one and season two. Yeah. And I think is also one of the reasons why season one of the original series, Klingons look so different than any other race of Klingon um, that we have ever seen. Is that what you think? Oh yeah. Well, because so later on, and we don't, I, I don't know if you're uh, recapping the episode where we discover who Ash Tyler really, um, or where part of his identity comes from. Go for it. But, but so, uh, in the pilot in episode two of actually, it's just the pilot of, um, discovery, uh, commander Burnham, uh, Georgia, uh, commander Giorgio and, uh, the crew of the Shenzo go off and, you know, Michael Burnham starts a war, uh, against, to Kuvma and then this albino, his albino follower, the keeper of the flame. Uh, oh my God. I'm about to say Vorcha because that's, but that's a mass effect thing. It's um, Volk. And so Volk son of none. So uh, Volk son of none is uh, a minor character that we see developing a relationship with uh, another Klingon's name. Who's totally escaping me, even though she was just there. Um, Lyra, Lyra, Lila, Lila, no, Lorel, Lorel is Klingon for Lila, whatever. Um, and we have this other character. They begin to uh, develop a relationship of mutual respect, so they say, which is Klingon for we're, they're going to get it on. And uh, uh, Lorel comes up with a plan to get uh even with the Federation and to secure Volk's place and uh, Takuvma's teachings as central to that of the Klingon empire. And at this point in time in the Trek universe history, the Klingon empire is a bunch of separate houses. Uh, there is no, the Emperor Kalis has yet to be cloned and is leading things. Uh, Galron, uh, Worf, none of these leaders of their houses are around. Um, so it's just a bunch of inter-clan warfare. Uh, what happens is uh, through a series of surgical and psychological um, surgeries, uh, they graft the mind and personality of Ash Tyler and Voke together so that basically Voke is, um, becomes Tyler. And the way they frame it is like his body has been through so much um, trauma and the bones have been crunched and like, Right apart, and there's some pretty graphic scenes of the surgery that's done, but only in flashback. So it's uh, the it's not gory, but the tension of the scene is increased by doing that. We see that Voke and Tyler are a merged personality, and it seems like that kind of surgery is used during the Klingon War, and that not all Klingons get healed, although eventually they do because um, later on in the series. Uh, we see the return of some of the original, uh, the original series Klingons fighting and returning to uh, address the Klingon storylines of DS9. So the only line officially that they talk about of why those Klingons look different is it was a dark time for the Empire and we do not discuss it, which yeah, is what see, Worf says. Yeah, to me, it's just basically, again, a very simple way of explaining 
it's a new trek. We're going to redesign the Klingons however we want kind of thing. Right. And we're going to try to make it make sense to a certain degree, but in the same way that technology has allowed them to have these massive space battles or whatever, they can do better costuming for the characters to make it look like a different species and not just, you know, what we saw in the original series. So I know that the... um, I don't know if you watch Face Off at all. We we love that series. And one of the judges there, Neville Page, was involved in the redesigns of the Klingons for that. Man, he he put up with a bunch of shit from jackasses, give him a hard time about it, and they didn't like it. And I'm like, I fucking adore it. I think the redesign is brilliant. And again, it's one of those times have changed. Fucking let go of it. I don't want to see what we saw in the original series or even the same as Worf in this. I want to right. see... What an advanced uh, makeup department now can do with this concept, and I absolutely adored these uh, these new Klingons. Yeah, I really dig the new Klingons. Like they are way more alien than we have seen in in the past. They're they're terrifying uh, in a way that you know uh, we don't really see in like modern track definitely not the next generation i feel like the next generation for a long time the purpose of having wharf was to show how badass the new monster of the week was because it would just fling wharf across the deck you know yeah. to be wharfed is an actual phrase so yeah i think it's it's great to have this new version of klingonism and like let us figure out like fan theory and head canon whatever we want the only thing I hope they ever say about it is like it was a dark time in our empire's history, and we will not discuss it further. That's yeah, it. Yeah, that's all that's that's needed for that. Because again, you have to accept certain elements when there is a new series, and one of it is those creators are going to want to tell the story their way. They're going to want to redesign certain things while still trying to make it fit within the existing canon. But you know what? Fuck, relax. <laughs> it's, a, it's a new design right. on a Klingon. Trust me, it's it's an improvement. And if you don't like it, whatever. Not everything has to be made for you, you know? So, yeah. And the woman who yeah. plays Laurel, uh, Mary Chefo, Chef, whatever, she's phenomenal. Like, to take a character like this, who is a villain, she tortures Ash and sexually rapes him and... And then becomes someone that over time, you actually like her. You like her character. Right. You want to see more of her on the stage. And she's she's somewhat underused in, at, at points because she's kind of thrown in their brig kind of thing. And I'm thinking that's also a, an easy way for them to not have to pay for all of the makeup they have to do on her whenever she's on screen. Um, but, man, she was just phenomenal whenever she was on screen. I adored her character. Yeah, I think Laurel and what's I think Laurel is a fantastic character. I think Tyler and Voke are great characters. Yeah. And what's interesting about the whole surgery thing, it's just to double down, triple down on the effects of war on both cultures, what it leaves in its wake. It's a series of commentaries that you can delve into for for months if you really wanted to. I just love like the basic idea of what did they do? What did they create? And then where Ash goes in the future. Well, the way that I looked at it, too, is that it, it gave Ash a spectacular backstory. Uh, 
not a good one, but you know, in terms of what happened to him, but a spectacularly interesting backstory. And by and large, that's what we got for most of the characters. I mean, even the the and the, the, the 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 android character that sacrifices herself later on. Yeah. I mean, a character that for many of the other treks would have just been somebody that they have at the helm that eh, maybe has a little bit of a limelight here and there, but not too much. Here, these characters have a backstory and have depth. They're not one-dimensional. And that's very much what you saw from uh, Ash. But more so than that, what it allowed for with Ash was a way to not create a foil for Burnham, but create a character that, because of her relationship with him, tests every aspect of her personality, both the human um, passionate side as well as the Vulcan analytical side and the human empathetic side and the, you know, all of these things because she has this romantic relationship with him. She has to contend with who he is later on and the fact that Vogue is in him. And then he kills, straight up murders a fan favorite character, the Dr. Culber. And yet even after that, her humanity is tested because she has to accept that that's not Ash, that was the other person inside of him and still feel strong enough that she has intimate moments with him later on in the story. And so it's, he is an amazing character and he's not the main character. Like, again, that it speaks to the, the, the quality of the writing that when they were creating all of these characters, they invested so much into each of them to make them interesting and be able to stand out in their episodes, no problem. Yeah, it's usually like, you know, Trek always has good, well, frequently has really fun, good characters, primary characters. And then they do do like a below decks episode with secondary and the Android characters backstory is, is haunting and, and terrifying and awful, but also like beautiful in the way it ends and how they fight. So yeah. it's. Yeah. Okay. Let's move on to into the forest. I go uh, into the forest. I go is the mid season finale um, where we're about to, where um, the, they have uh, defended this planet. They're let me rephrase that the Federation needs to uh, send a signal and they're dealing with Klingon ships that cloak and the discovery is going to figure out a way has been ordered back to um, the, to a star base to figure out uh, how to do address the cloaking ships because the cloaking ships are just showing up, blowing up Federation ships and transports and uh, jumping away. And no one can figure out the cloaking issue. Uh, The discovery has also um, is using a, a beacon on this planet Parvo to do war stuff. What's more important is that Parvo is populated by energy beings who are complete pacifists and have no way to defend themselves against the incoming Klingons, um, led by the current, uh, he's not the regent, he's not the emperor, but he has Vok's ship and Takuvma's ship, uh, the ship where uh, uh, Philippa Giorgio, the old captain of the, of, uh, the Shenzo, died with Michael Burnham. So into the forest I go, uh, 
they have to figure out a way to crack the the cloak. And so they come up with a plan that involves an away team into this gigantic dreadnought coffin ship. And what's really cool about this ship is is like it's literally covered in uh, coffins and in the corpses of slain Klingon warriors, which I thought was a nice, if morbid, touch. So they're showing up. Uh, the Actually, uh, Captain Lorca decides to uh, violate the orders, break the rules, and is going to slowly go back to the starbase he's been ordered to to give his crew the time to crack the code uh, and to create some sort of way around the cloak. And the super scientists on the Discovery basically say with enough data points they could collect um, a way to calculate and create an algorithm that will showcase uh, where a ship is based on, you know, MacGuffin technology and warp displacement fields and gravitational fluctuations and a whole series of other technobabble words that basically means they're going to find the ships either wake um, and then they're going to be able to win the war. So they, uh, Burnham and Tyler go to this coffin ship and they are planting beacons throughout it to collect this data. Meanwhile, uh, Lorca is uh, revealing to... Uh, our our lieutenant um what's good lord he's been in so many other things uh our our good doctor uh our good doctor's boyfriend stamets um, stamets right stamets is coming uh is um trying to no longer do the jumps because it's really taking a toll on his body uh and it's We've already seen some weirdness coming involved with jumping in and out of uh, using the spore driving, having a human do it. It does bad stuff to a person. But Lorca reveals that he's been collecting all sorts of data on the spore drive and hopes to, once the war's over, go explore these other pocket universes. Now, immediately when they say pocket universes, if you haven't realized that this is a nod to the mirror universe that we are, uh, that Roger and I have already talked about, if you hadn't already figured out that Lorca was from the other universe, this is the moment where you figure out Lorca's from a different universe for two reasons, uh, the ending and, uh, but the ending and the introduction of, oh yeah, he's been just tracking all this stuff because, you know, one day we're going to get a chance to explore it. Um, honestly, though, this is where, like, I had figured out Lorca was from the mirror universe a long time before. I don't know about you, Roger. I actually, well, there were hints of it, I, but I was willing to kind of not decide, let's see where they go with it to see if they, they do decide to, to make him from that universe. I'm glad that they did. And this yeah. also speaks to um, Jason Isaac's acting ability, which is phenomenal. The man can act because by this point, we are nine episodes into the series, and he is not your traditional captain because nope. you have, um, we have seen many times where a Star Trek captain will defy orders and do whatever they want. I mean, that was Kirk's MO. Even, even Picard did it. They all did it. Let's not even talk about Janeway. She'll do whatever the fuck she wants. <laughs> but this was different because it his character really 
walk that fine line of this is not just you're not just breaking uh, not following orders you're kind of on the moral gray side here you're you're not necessarily in the right and in some cases you are absolutely not in the right and yet within 9 episodes you still learn to really like the character at least i did and oh, when, yeah. when you're seeing moments with him and ash as well when they are being held afterwards how they bond and you know he's not a good guy but he is the guy that they need right now kind of deal so to me again it was it was one of those things where in they had to write it in such a way because he is it's going to be revealed that he is a bad guy he is legit a bad guy from this alternate universe and so because we have come to care for him again not trust him but care for him as a character kind of thing when you get that reveal later on it's not a uh we don't feel deceived we don't feel betrayed it's like okay this makes sense now i really want to see what they're going to do with the character at least it was that way for me yeah for for me um yeah, I liked Lorca. I didn't trust him because I was like, oh, he's, you know, from the Mirror Universe. But that didn't take away any sense of betrayal because, like, when you're watching the show, like, the way um, Martin uh, comes across, Michael comes across, Sonequa Martin-Green, her character, Michael Burnham, comes across. It is so devastating. Um, it was still really well done. And, and the only reason why I think, you know, some of us figure it out is because we've seen too much Star Trek yeah. and we've played too many Star Trek role-playing games and we have, you know, like, well, that's the danger of it. using a trope. I mean, it's, yeah. it's it, people are going to see it coming. So at that point it becomes, what are you going to do with it? And that's where again, right. I feel it, it worked a great effect. Yeah. It, the question, the problem isn't necessarily that it's a trope. It's, is the trope being executed well? If it's executed well, who cares? Uh, and they execute it, they execute it greatly. Uh, just like uh, Tyler and uh, Michael Burnham execute their plan to plant all the devices perfectly, with one exception, as they're coming to plant a second device. Um, Burnham detects human life signs on a Klingon ship. They go to do a rescue mission. Uh, turn, and then uh, our friend Ash Tyler sees Laurel, who is also being held in this, where this other where the human uh, admiral is also being kept. And he goes into shock because his torturer, his tormentor is there in front of him. Uh, so it's big and it's bad. And uh, Burnham's got to go finish the mission on her own. So we've got a big fight um, in the series of like the reveals of what's going on with, with uh, Ash's trauma. And there's um, hints that not all is okay in his brain. And it's not just, the trauma you would expect from what Laurel did to him and of being held captive by Klingons. There's more going on. Regardless. Very, very quickly, just to say Shazad Latif, Latif, whatever. Yeah. Oh, my God. Phenomenal so actor. Great work. And Stamets, Anthony Rapp. Phew. I mean, he, I he he's just so goddamn good. He is uh he plays a bit character on The Good Fight, another CBS All Access TV show that is a spin-off of another 
great CBS TV show that my life, my wife loves. Regardless, um, uh, Burnham goes, confronts the new captain of the coffin ship, Takuma's uh, Dreadnought. Uh, battle ensues. She tricks him and basically steals back Giorgio's uh, command pin, uh, manages to rescue Tyler and the Admiral and, Lor- and takes Laurel as a captive. Uh, and it looks like they've got this. Um, oh, and while they're doing that, um, the while they're planning these beacons, the key is the Discovery has to do 132 extra jumps around the ship to calculate enough of the variables and factors so that they can complete the algorithm. Basically enough data collection from a various points of view so that they know where the ship is. They do that. Um, uh, they, Burnham is rescued. Tyler is rescued. The Admiral's rescued. Lyra is held in custody. Uh, the ship cloaks. They find it anyway. They blow it all to hell. And they're going to go back to the Starbase and have this grand old celebration because they're going to take the algorithm and mainstream it. Um, which, uh, for me, like, as a person that's starting to learn about algorithms and stuff, like, yeah, that makes sense. You don't take your your testing algorithm and just send it out to the general population. There's some feature tuning that you have to do. Regardless, they're going to go off into space and save the day with the Federation um, and I honestly think that Lorca is willing to win the war for the Federation and then go back and explore. Um, but when Stamets reveals that he's got one more jump in him and then he's done, Lorca's like, all right, well, time to put my plan into motion to go back to the mirror universe. Uh, everyone says their goodbyes. They're about to celebrate. They do one last black alert, which is the discovery's code for we're going to use the MacGuffin network to jump. Uh, Lorca changes the co- coordinates, which you clearly see. Like, the camera focuses on the console that he's using as he pulls up the navigation, changes the con- changes the coordinates, and boom, they're in the middle of the Klingon uh, debris field. The starbase isn't where it's supposed to be. The universe's uh, basic lights and uh, atomic makeup is a little bit different, and they have no idea where they are. And uh, to Lorca's credit and Jason Isaac's credit as an amazing actor, he's like, I don't know what happened. Where are we? <laughs> What's going on? And it's all part of the plan. Um, I, I wanted to review this episode because it shows off just a willingness to go into some pretty dark places yeah. of the human psyche in regard to Ash. Also of the resilience of the Admiral. Also of the treachery and, but the, and the good, the, the treachery of your comrade, right? Like, Betrayed by your brother in arms. Like, Lorca is, like, they don't know about the Mirror Universe. We know about the Mirror Universe. And so we witness this happen, and it's just, you're like, oh, my God, what did Lorca do? Um, what's going on here? It's, it's just a great episode. Um, also because the best couple in Trek, uh, better than Jadzia, Dax, and Worf. So that's saying something for me. Um, our good doctor and Stamets, they're a married couple or they're dating or they're a married couple. I think they're married, uh, serving on the same, same ship together. Um, we see them basically say, yeah, well, we're going to go to this wonderful opera house to watch a, do a, a version of La Boheme. And they're the greatest couple in Trek and I love them. And that's pretty much all I had to say, because now I want to just talk about them. 
Yeah, it was, we were devastated when Ash kills the doctor because he's such a great character. And, and again, it was one of those, why do you have to kill one of the two gay people on the show? You're trying to have diversity. Don't freaking kill off the gay couple. Like you're celebrating gay marriage. Don't kill one of them off. But then you found out, especially at the red carpet event between the two seasons, which I, I did watch, um, because he was there and he was saying, eh, I can't tell you much, but I'm in this season. So we got to see what was happening. That is where there was another, for me, another, you know, less than savory aspect of the two seasons. And that is in bringing him back because of how they brought him back. Um, this idea that the network can photocopy someone kind of deal and and just bring them back. I wasn't as thrilled with. It was one of those, okay, you did something horrible, but you did something horrible. So accept it and move on and deal with the consequences of that. So if you're going to bring the person back, well, okay, it's a cheat, but it's a cheat that is by and large accepted by most people. But you already had a system in place to bring him back bring back the alternate universe version of him. Boom. Problem solved. And it's an already established thing that you've done. But if you're going to make it so that it's through, again, the, the mycelial network cocoon bullshit thing, it's like, oh, for fucking hell, why? Why did you have to try to invent something that is even makes even less fucking logical sense when you could have just pulled him out of the thing. And he would have been different because it's a different universe, but you're doing that with this version as well. So I kind of wish they had kept it tight and just used what was already in there instead of doing that. So I don't know if it's from Trek or a reading or whatever, but I feel like one of the things that made the, the, like, one of the most creepy aspects of the mirror universe is uh, they're fascists. And I don't want a fascist doctor on the ship. I totally get where you're coming from. Um, and we could continue this conversation. Yeah, later, but there but could like, be a redemption arc as well. I mean, even, even with Giorgio, like, I mean, if you don't like her by the end of the second season, I'm not saying trust her, <laughs> but if you don't like oh, her, yeah. There's something wrong with you. And they could have done the same thing with the doctor. Just give him maybe more of a redemption arc so that you are really cheering for him and for the relationship with Stamets at that point. Because it would be, much as we saw with, for lack of a better term, this reborn doctor, they're having this massive issue with their relationship as well wait well not just issue it's ended so they could have done the same kind of thing with with this fascist version of the doctor yep i totally understand i i i um yeah like the return of our good doctor did not bother me at all i was like the problem isn't that you're killing off a gay character necessarily the problem is there are so few gay characters even on a show that celebrating diversity and also the problem when you kill off a gay character is if, like, gay people, if a gay character suffers from happiness and then the punish, they're punished for it, well, now all of a sudden. So I see why. I'm glad that there was a space between those episodes of they have this lovely moment together before, uh, before the good doctor is temporarily out of, um, 
out of sorts. Yeah, it's 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 interesting because, like you said too, it's it's Trek is a show that that uh, celebrates diversity, but but you can also say eh, they really don't always hit the mark in that that very specific thing either, because you do get moments where the the minority is not treated with respect or is killed off or, or different things like that. But then you have moments like with with Michael Burnham, where some people will say, yeah, but she's essentially killed off at the end and sacrifices herself, something which you see a lot of people of color having to do in films. But it, funny enough, I was reading a review from a woman of color who was talking about it and saying, it's not the same here because... This is a character that has had two seasons to establish herself as a hero, as the hero of this story. So she's going out in essentially a blaze of glory, leading the crew, yeah, to their death potentially, but in a very heroic fashion. So she's treated with reverence throughout um, and given depth, given a, a level of 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 introspective design that you don't often see with a person of color or a minority that's, that's made to be so two dimensional. And she, that's not Burnham. My God, that's not Burnham. She is conflicted and twisted, makes bad choices, pays for it, has her redemption arc, and then becomes the savior of humanity, of biological entities across the universe. So, so it's kind of a, 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 a give and take whenever you're seeing something like this where you're like, ah, fuck, they killed off one of two gay characters in this story, but you have to also give them a little bit of leeway. It's going, okay, well, what are you going to do with it? How are you going to make this better? And they brought him back. It's just the manner in which they did so isn't necessarily something that I personally like, but other people like yourself are going to be all right with it. Yeah. Okay, let's move on because we are starting to get a little long in the tooth here. Um, let's move on to what's past this prologue. What's past this prologue is, uh, the return arc, uh, from the mirror universe where it turns out that, uh, the empress of the, uh, Terran empire is none other than captain Philippa Giorgio. It's not the same Giorgio. There's some, some, uh, we have seen what the Terrans do and how awful they are as rulers. And Lorca has returned to lead a coup against the emperor or excuse me, up against the Empress. Uh, what we end up seeing is the Discovery trying to figure out a way to rescue, rescue Burnham and return home. And it feels like there's going to be a, they're going to have to sacrifice themselves, not just to um, deal a blow to the Terran Empire, but also to save all life everywhere, because it turns out that how the, tem the Terran Empire is powering these gigantic warships uh, is through the mycelial network. And their presence there is corrupting the mycelial network because it's draining too much and not letting it regenerate. So um, we see Lorca's rebellion. He frees his followers. He basically convinces or is trying to convince Michael Burnham, who in the Mirror Universe is was also Philippa Giorgio's um, surrogate daughter. Uh, but Lorca and Burnham had a thing. And... Burnham betrayed the Empress, and now um, our Alwar Burnham feels like she's betrayed her Captain Giorgio. It's very complicated. But, but, oh my God, interesting. 
the relationship between those two characters, both before or, or, or both um, from the canonical universe, as well as the relationship between Burnham and the alternate, the mirror universe, Georgiou. My God, the, it's just it. a spectacular give and take of affection and distrust. And I, I absolutely adored it. And it's a relationship that we see continue in the season two. Like, and they oh, just, yeah, it yeah. just is such a, like, there's respect and affection and total distrust of each other. It's phenomenal. And Michelle Yeoh is such a brilliant actress. She can do no uh, wrong. I, I agree. Um, yeah. Anybody that gives up ballet because it, uh, to go into martial arts because ballet was too hard on the body and continues to be that much of a badass, like, Oh God, that that story about Michelle Yeoh um, switching from ballet to martial arts is is fun- is also a, just an, an an amazing mindset into uh, or look into her mindset. Yeah. Regardless, we go off. Um, the discovery comes in. They figure out a way to harness the explosion of the mycelial network energy to ride a wave back into their timeline and their and hopefully like return to mere moments before. Um, they after they left, and what and hap, what happens is, uh, Lorca is uh, defeated uh, through some trickery on behalf of um, both Giorgio and Burnham and uh, Commander Saru. We see uh, like there's some great like interest inter- interesting battles between Lorca's people, the Empress's people. Um, Burnham and, and the Empress have this great heart-to-heart in the Empress's um, sanctuary, basically, in her ready room, which Burnham knows she's going to go to because that's what her Giorgio would do. Um, Can uh, we just say to the, the, once again, the design, once you go into the mirror universe, the look of oh. everything, like whoever was in charge of the concept designs to bring this all to life, just spectacular it's again they they oh, took yeah. an idea what what is real and kind of played with it so it still looked like it belonged but just looks darker looks more menacing and yet cool as fuck <laughs> yeah did you have anything else on that that episode what's past is prologue no but at the end of what's past is prologue uh, our heroes saved the day um, including Michael Burnham decides to save Giorgio and jumps into the next universe, jumps uh, across to the next universe. They leave Captain Lorca, um, who's dead, dissolved by or burned up by the plasma coming out of the mycelial network. And uh, they arrive back into their own timeline months after the war, after they had left, only to discover that the Klingon Empire is destroying the Federation and the Federation war seems all but lost. I want to ask you something now, and I'm hoping you remember because I don't. <laughs> it's been a while sure. since I watched this. I'm, I'm actually due to rewatch both seasons. I don't remember how Lorca got into the main universe. Was that ever explained? It was in this very episode where um, alternate universe Stannis and uh, Lorca meet. You know, it's basically... Um, what That's happened right. in the original series, but it's done um, a little bit differently. Uh, plasma, st- an ion storm in a 
in a nebula transporter malfunction and they are zipped through dimensions, which is what oh, happens yeah. in the Mirror Universe episode. Yeah, okay. Yeah, I remember now. Okay, so let's move on from there because what's happening now is that as interesting as all this has been up until this point, we're getting towards the end of season one and that's when we get Captain Pike and that's when we get Spock. And these things were not just hinted early on, like not within the show per se, but with a lot of social media and them hyping the show and whatnot, we got to see some screen caps of some of the things that were coming up. So people were very excited. And because it had been established that, um, that Burnham is Spock's foster sibling, that it would make sense that we would see Spock. And then they made such a big deal about Spock's casting that you knew, okay, this is going to be uh, important. We're going to get to see this this guy quite a bit and and presumably some of the other members of the original series, perhaps, whatever. And we do get to see Pike. Um, for me, again, as, as someone who is a fan of of the franchise... Not, I wouldn't put myself like on on Trekkie level. I, I not even remotely close, but I love it. It's fun. So when you're seeing these characters that that you've kind of grown to like, even if you haven't seen them that much, like Pike really has not had a ton in the canon. He was very nope. important, but not a ton. And then you see him in the the J.J. Uh, Abrams version where he sacrifices himself to save the entire, like a large portion of the crew. And in those few minutes, you fall in love with the character. Of course, it helps that it's portrayed by Hemsworth. But he's, because of that, it really kind of helped put Pike at the forefront of people's minds and want to know more about him. I mean, that was one of the things that uh, uh, Michael from uh, This Week in Trek tweeted about saying, like, should we have a Pike series in the same way that we're having a Picard series? And it was like, absolutely, I would yeah. adore that. And the guy who plays um, who plays Pike, Anson Mount, is right, fantastic right, right, right. in the role. Like, he is, he has that rogue personality that we know Pike to have. He is also still commanding. He is open to listening to people to his officers and yet still has enough enough character that when he is taking charge, when he's doing different things and he's kind of putting himself in the lead, you're not like, Hey, hey buddy, you're, you're just a second rate second tier character here. Like we want to know about Burnham and all these and Saru and, and these characters that we love. No, he weaves himself into the cast brilliantly. And part of that is the very strong writing. And part of it, of course, is, Anson Mount's acting is fantastic. The only thing, the only thing is he's distractingly handsome. God damn it! Every time you see him on screen, you're going like, "Jesus Christ, buddy! Yep. Come on, mess up your hair at least a little." <laughs> like you're making me feel bad. <laughs> it's also like just a wonderful thing for Anson Mount to do after his uh, terrible role as Black Bolt in Marvel's in a Marvel show so bad I did not watch a single episode. See, I didn't actually watch Inhumans. I didn't even realize he was in it. That's all I know about Inhumans is that he's Black Bolt. And I, I dig him, but why cast somebody with a voice like that if he's not going to talk? Yeah. Like. <laughs> so anyways, so that wraps up season one 
of of discovery. There's still a ton we haven't touched on. Like, quite seriously, Saru is one of the most interesting Federation characters ever created, and we've barely touched on him. However, that's going to change. Oh, right. We're going to talk more about him in the second part of this. So we are going to wrap up. You can check the show notes at Popcorn Ronin for this episode, and there's going to be a part two. We decided there's just too much to talk about here to squeeze it all into one episode and stay faithful to it. So make sure to check out the second episode where we're going to dive into a little bit more of the short treks as well as season two and our expectations, our hopes of what season three can bring for this series. So with that, we will see you guys soon.